Podcastle, episode 331, for October 3rd, 2014. Drowning in Sky, by Julia August. Rated R. Hello, and welcome to Podcastle. I'm your guest host, Rachel Jones, here to bring you something a little bit special. This week's story comes from the Women Destroy Fantasy Anthology, released October 1st, a special one-time issue of the temporarily resurrected fantasy magazine, guest edited by the ever-amazing Cat Rambo. Women Destroy Fantasy is a series of special issues produced by Lightspeed Magazine to highlight women's writing and genre. It began with Women Destroy Science Fiction, released in June, and continues this month with the debut of Women Destroy Fantasy at Fantasy Magazine, and Women Destroy Horror at Nightmare Magazine. These issues feature women's work in a big way. Not only are all the stories authored by women, all the issues were woman-produced from editors to illustrators to slush readers to proofreaders. The crew was kind enough to allow Podcastle to run one of the Women Destroy fantasy stories in conjunction with the issues released this month, and the one we have for you is very special. Special thanks to John Joseph Adams and Christy Yant for making this possible. I highly recommend you check out the full issue yourself. All the stories are amazing, and Lightspeed's podcast is featuring several, too. This week's story explores the question of who is pulling the strings. Why do we make the choices we make? Why do we choose to help some people but not others? Can you ever really manipulate someone into aiding you unwillingly? Or does the victim always have a choice to make, despite what fate has to say? Podcastle's very proud to present Drowning in Sky, written by Julia August, originally published in Fantasy Magazine. Julia August is fascinated by drowned cities and the ancient world. Her short fiction has been featured in Lackington's, SQ Mag, and Cabinet de Fay. She is at jaugust7 on Twitter and j-august on Tumblr. Our reader this week is Abra Staffenweib. Abra is the author of the serial novel Circus of Brass and Bone. Circus of Brass and Bone is a post-apocalyptic steampunk story about a circus traveling through the collapse of civilization. People come together or die. Join the Circus of Brass and Bone on its travels and witness the grand finale coming to this Halloween. You can learn more about Abra's work at our website, which will be linked in the show notes. So wrap the one you love in true silk, grab a glass of well-watered wine, and enjoy the story. Drowning in Sky by Julia August Anne tracked the seabed rising for days or hours or minutes that felt like months before the jolt of the ship knocking against the harbor wall jarred her eyes open. Water sloshed in the hollows of the hold. The salted ribs of the ship were singing, as were the tin ingots stacked twenty deep at her back. Under the nasal whine of wood and metal, Anne heard the slow, deep hum of earth and stone. She didn't need the sailors to tell her they had arrived. She flattened her shoulders against the ingots and took a breath, then another. Her lap was full of dust. The limestone slab that had weighed down Anne's knees at the start of the voyage was only a pebble. Anne rolled it between her palms. She could hear Tethys scratching at the wooden walls. If she got up, she could get out. She could bury herself in earth, her hands and her head and her humming ears, and she could damp down her hair with dirt and never, ever go to sea again. 
Tethys had promised, she told herself. Anne had walked up and down the distant shore, and Tethys had crept over the sand on a skim of foam, and Tethys had promised. The trapdoor opened. Anne crushed the pebble between the heels of her hands and experienced a flush of clear-headed energy. Tethys broke all her promises, but not this one. The sky opened up endlessly above the deck, and Anne could have drowned in it. It was cold and gray and specked with stinging rain, and Anne, glancing around, saw the horizon merge seamlessly into a froth of cloud. She clutched at the mast. A colossal Tethys reared up against the tidal sky, holding the whole harbor under her bronze trident. The seahorse grasped in the sea cat's other hand seemed to be struggling to escape. Heliki, the captain said behind Anne. Good? You can travel by road to Tharnas. At Tharnas, the magistrates had refused entry to all ships sailing from Vitalia because of the plague. Anne nodded. As far as she was concerned, the only reason to prefer Tharnas to Heliki had been the extra week it had taken to get here. Sima has your belongings, the captain said. Where will you go? The ground sang out when Anne stepped onto it. Rich river clay, she thought, and clashing voices of disharmonious moral. Already Anne's clarity was clouding. She could feel fault lines. She could taste young growth and silt. The sailor shouldered her bags expectantly. Unseeing, Anne plunged into Heliki. It must have been a festival day. There was music, the jarring sort made by real instruments, and blossoms everywhere, and wine running dark down sanguinary streets. That was real, as were the trees and painted temples. Even now, Anne could see unmoving things. It was only people who flickered past like the mist, seen and forgotten in the same breath. It gave Heliki a delirious edge that told Anne she should find something to eat. She had been living off of limestone for weeks. And this flood of sensation was more than the first flush of relief at returning to land. She needed sleep, too. It was a long time since she had been a stranger in a strange city. She needed to see things clearly again. A sycamore leaned over the damp piazza. Anne stopped beneath it, hearing the sap rising from the roots, or her heart thumping in her chest. She should have made the sailor set her down on a beach somewhere. She should have walked to Khaliki. She should have filled herself with earth before she dealt with people. Great terracotta jars stood open on the steps of a nearby temple. When Anne concentrated, she could see men ladling water and wine from the jars into what must be cheap cups, since fragments of smashed pottery bloomed in concentric circles across the piazza. It is the day of the opening of the jars, said Sima, whose Vitalia was rather better than Anne's Dorican. For the feast of the new wine, you want? A woman who had been sitting on the steps stood up. She was staring at Anne. She was real. She was as real as the tree and the wine jars and the temple, Anne could see every inch of her clearly, from her sandals to her gold-flecked Dorican cloak to her perfect cheekbones. Her hair's spun gold dazzled Anne's eyes. She looked angry. 
she came quickly across the piazza, her feet striking sparks. She was already speaking, but since she was speaking in Doric and Anne understood very little, something about mothers and protectors. Sima, she said, what does she want? Sima spat. Says the archons will protect her if the mother sent you. She's Phaeacian, mistress. What does that mean? The woman said something to Sima, who spat again and replied with a spiky mouthful of Dorican. The woman drew back in surprise. Sima grinned at Anne. I tell her you Vitalian, he said. She thinks you come from Phaeacia, like her. Why? The woman plucked a hair from Anne's gown. But you're so fair, she said in Vitalian, and smiled suddenly. Come, I was wrong. I should have known from your dress. Forgive me. She took Anne's wrist familiarly, twitching her cloak to show off its golden border. Anne felt a flush of warmth, not unlike the clarity that came from consumed stone. Come and drink to the wine god with me. My name is Arachne. She led Anne toward the temple and the wine jars. Spider? Anne said. Arachne laughed. Very good, she said. You know some Dorican then. But after the weaver, not the spider, you know the story. She placed a cup of well-watered wine in Anne's hands. It tasted of sunlight and baked clay. Tell me, darling, who are you? We hear bad things from Vitalia. The Archons say we should close the gates to travelers from the west. You arrive just in time. Are you flying from the plague or the barbarians? Both. Has your city fallen? I am very sorry. Arachne put her hand on Anne's shoulder. Where are you from? Florence. Arachne went still. Tell me, she said, as if at a distance. They say it was in Florence that the dead first began to get up. Is that true? Yes. I know a mother when I see one. Are you the Lady Anna, who was the Duke's prisoner? Anne swallowed another sunny mouthful. It helped a bit. She could almost see the edge of things. Yes, she said. Darling, you must come home with me, Arachne said, and clasped Anne's hands warmly around the wine cup. Her smile was wide enough to fall into. I wish you would come to my door. I owe all I have to Theos Xenias, Theos the hospitable, you would say. Let no one say that we don't know how to welcome strangers in Heliki. Sima dumped Anne's bags in Arachne's patterned courtyard. The mosaic was mostly flesh and froth, twisted up with Dorican phrases Anne could not make out. There was an altar splashed with wine and spring flowers. I go now? Sima said, looking around. Yes, thank you. Phaeacian women are all witches. I know a good inn. This is fine. There was a room, and there was a table, and there was bread and salted sardines. Arachne poured Anne wine herself. It is the feast of new wine, she said, leaning on the table as a maid would never have done. She had shed her cloak and flashed tawny skin down the open side of her purple Dorican dress. 
For three days I serve my slaves. You do not do this in Vitalia. The wheat had grown in foreign soil. Flavor flooded Anne's mouth. Acres and golden acres of fields. The sky alternating blue and rain-washed. She broke off another piece and dipped it in olive oil. She could taste flecks of stone from when the flour had been ground, which had probably happened in Heriki. The oil was certainly from somewhere nearby. Arachne was smiling. Eat, she said. I go to promise my maid her freedom if she will only draw you a bath. She would have washed Anne's hair, but Anne said, No. And Arachne went away. Anne's mouth was full of wheat and olives. She washed her arms and her face and sat breathing steam until the flavors faded. Sleep, she thought. She needed sleep now. It was harder to get up than she'd expected. Her clothes were nowhere to be seen. She stumbled out wrapped in a towel, her hair dripping down her neck, and found Arachne coming up from the courtyard with her arms full of cloth. Darling, Arachne said, hurrying up the steps. You Vitalians wear so many things. Look, I have a good Dorican peplus for you. It was scarlet and shot through with silk. Two bronze pins rattled together in a brown felt slipper. I wove it myself. Come and see how it suits you. She held back a curtain. Anne walked through into a wall of gold and stopped still, dazzled. Light flickered over the walls, over the table, over the spreading bed. Slowly her eyes cleared. Her bags lay underneath the window. The shutters were open, and the golden tapestries whispered against the walls. Arachne set down the slippers. Come, she said, urging Anne toward the bed. She shook out the peplus, which looked like a tablecloth, and held it up against Anne as if to check the richness of the color. Hold it there, darling, she said, digging her thumbs under Anne's collarbone. Just like that. Anne lifted her hands unthinkingly and felt the towel fall. The salt breeze caught the water trickling down her spine. She couldn't move. She felt first cold and then hot, a slow warmth radiating outward from her parted lips and her navel, tingling to the pit of her stomach as the scarlet cloth brushed against her breasts. The pomegranates woven into its border glittered. She couldn't feel herself breathing. Arachne touched Anne's cheek and bent her bright head, and even her eyelashes shone. Her mouth was soft. The shape of her body pressed against Anne through the cloth. She slid her palms down Anne's naked back, then under the cloth, her hair spilling, shimmering over her shoulders. The bed hit Anne's legs. She tumbled backwards as slowly as a feather, her eyes filling up with gold. She dreamed of Tethys. She dreamed she was standing on the beach, any beach, and Tethys lay there like a great cat with her paws folded under her, drowning the stars in her midnight eyes. Dread knotted Anne's stomach. You promised, she said. Anne, child, said the sea cat. How do you find Heliki? A thought flashed its fins, then darted away. It was impossible to catch it beneath the liquid weight of the sea cat's gaze. Welcoming. Take my advice, child. Ask your hostess about Nike Apteros. 
Why? I have a kindness for those who shake the earth when they walk, the sea cat said. For am I not the mother of earthquakes? There was a terracotta lamp, and in the lamplight, Arachne crouched against the wall, her hand raised to shield her face. She looked amazed. Ghostly images of Tethys and the midnight beach were collapsing into shadow. The scarlet cloth was twisted up around Anne's legs. She began to sit up. Anna, Arachne said, turning towards her. Did you see that? Yes, it's nothing. But what was it? Sometimes I dream like that. It was hard not to see two of everything, except for Arachne, whom Anne could still see clearly. A few more good meals should bring the world back into focus. Anne's bags lay open at Arachne's feet. What are you doing? Arachne looked momentarily blank. The lamp gave her feet a golden glow. I was thirsty, she said, picking up the lamp from the floor. She set it down on the table and filled a two-handled silver cup, which she brought back to the bed. Here, she said, sitting beside Anne and holding up the cup. Drink. The wine was strong. This is the old wine, Arachne said, sniffing it appreciatively. I save it for my guests. She sipped, smiled, set the cup down. Her peplus was pinned at the shoulders. She slid out one long bronze pin, letting the cloth slip down just enough to reveal the swell of her breast. You must not dream, darling. It displeases me. She straddled Anne's thighs. Anne felt the breath rise out of her as Arachne pushed her back into the pillows. Arachne's voice drifted down. You are so fair, darling. She was stroking Anne's hair. Only the oldest mothers are so fair. And you are so young. Her fingertips brushed Anne's lips. And your dreams, I never knew there were such women among the barbarians. Anne opened her eyes and found even Arachne was blurring, her hair falling in a shimmering silken curtain around Anne's head, her knees pressed Anne's hips. The gold flickering behind Arachne, above her, in every strip of cloth covering every wall and surface, merged dizzyingly in the dying lamplight. It made Anne's head spin. She floated upwards into Arachne's honey-colored gaze. What can you do? Darling? You must have some sort of talent. What is it? Arachne's lashes flickered. I'll tell you, she said, her voice dropping to a purr. She crooked her arm around Anne's head, piling up her hair on the pillow. She was still wearing most of her peplus, and the rub of silk and wool between their bodies was more intimate than skin. I'll tell you when you ask me again, but ask me something else first. Sleep lapped Anne like the sea. Who are the mothers? Ah, them! They are the great women of Phaeacia, darling. My city, the city I come from. The most northern of all the ten cities. I left the mothers behind long ago. Why did you think they sent me? 
there was a misunderstanding. I went to Palatine first. It is our daughter's city. When I was not welcome there, I came here. It was all a long time ago. She had the skin and smile of a young woman, but then so did Anne. Tell me, Anna, how did you leave Florence? Anne closed her eyes. She didn't want to remember Florence now. It fell, she said. I walked away. The Duke died, did he not? Yes. And you were revenged? Anne didn't want to remember Pietro either. You're a weaver? Arachne laughed. I am a woman, she said. I weave. Do you not in Vitalia? In Fiesha, even the mothers weave. Especially the mothers. Fiesha is not the city of Palas for nothing. But not for money, darling. Do you know the word hitira? No. It means something like companion in your language, I think. I have many friends. You must meet them. I know the archons will want to meet you. I don't want to. Who is Nike Opteras? Some of the elasticity went out of Arachne's smile. Ah, she said. You mean our wingless victory? Do I? She was commissioned for the new temple last year. The archons wanted her carved without wings so she could never fly away. Is she a god? They don't usually like that sort of idea. Arachne was almost frowning. There have been signs, she admitted. They say pillars of flame have been seen in the countryside, and all the rats ran away towards Kinestris. But it may just be talk. She leaned over the bed. Let's finish this wine, darling. You won't dream at all after drinking this. It was midday, and the sun flashed over the shining tapestries. A dull ache gnawed at the back of Anne's skull. She lay feeling slightly sick and slightly dizzy and mostly exhausted, until a savory wisp of scent prompted her to feel hungry as well. With some effort, she sat up. The roar of light that flooded her head almost flung her onto her back. She set her feet on the floor and waited for it to subside. The wine jar had been refilled. There was food on the table, and Anne, working methodically through dried figs and bread, tasted stony soil and barley roasted before it was ground. Her faintness was passing. She looked for water and found none, then for her Vitalian clothes, which were gone too. Not even a shift remained in her bags. Her money was still there, as was the only notebook she had brought with her. She had left so much behind in Florence. She recovered the scarlet peplus from the bed and tried to remember how Arachne wore hers. The top of the cloth doubled down over the breasts, she thought, and then it was wrapped lengthwise around the body. She struggled to pin it up over her shoulders. She felt naked. Even fastened with a girdle, the dress was flimsy and insecure. But she would look less foreign. Looking foreign only made people bother her. She put on the slippers and left the room. As soon as she went out, she felt better. 
The house had a loggia above an inner court like Anne's house in Florence, although the windows, of course, were not barred, and there were no inaccessible rooms set aside for servants and guards. Down in the courtyard, a great many people seemed to be coming and going. Arachne sat by a table laden with wine and cakes, the fanciest of Anne's three gowns lying over her lap. She jumped up when she saw Anne, her eyes widening. "'Anna, darling!' she exclaimed. "'If I'd known you were awake, I would have come to help you dress.' "'This is wrong?' "'No, no, you look very fine. You are a beautiful woman, darling.' She twitched the peplus over Anne's shoulders, unpinning and repinning with busy fingers, and kissed Anne's cheek. "'Did you eat? Have a cake. Come and walk with me in the garden.' It was a second courtyard planted with grass and climbing roses. The buds already nodded among the thorns. Arachne glanced around with pleasure. They have no idea of gardens here, she told Anne. In Palatine, every great house has a garden. They learned that from Kivrente, which is a great empire beyond the desert. She must have caught Anne's interest. You know of Kivrente? My grandfather told me stories. I wanted to go there one day. And then the wicked duke imprisoned you. I see. She pressed Anne's hand. Darling, you must forgive me for stealing your clothes away. I thought you would want me to wash them. And I wanted to see what Vitalian cloth is like. It is very lovely. But do you not weave even a little true silk into it? I don't know. I didn't make it. What's true silk? Arahani seemed taken aback. But how did you... When your dreams appeared last night, how did that happen? Anne shrugged. Standing in Arachne's garden, as small as it was and however shallow the soil, made her feel like a depression in wet sand, filling up effortlessly with energy. She looked around for a rosebud. It opened under her fingers, spreading its damp pink petals to the sun. Like that, she said. Arachne's mouth fell open. Come and sit down with me, she said faintly. She drew Anne down to the grass. Do you not weave at all, or spin? No. You are a remarkable woman. You must have made that duke sorry he ever saw you. The last time Anne had seen Pietro, he had been dying in the rain. She had been trying to forget that moment for months. It still surfaced too often in the depths of the night. His curls, his clothes, his labored breathing. How, even at the end, he had struggled to smile. A heavy lassitude crept over Anne. Arachne's voice seemed to come from very far away. What happened? Anne closed her eyes. He loved me, she said. What happened to the first Arachne, the weaver? Ah, her. There are two stories. I like the tale they tell in Palatine better, but the mothers are very strict in Fiesha, much stricter than Palatine. Arachne was a poor girl who thought she could weave better than Pallas. Well, there was a competition, and Arachne lost, of course, and she was so upset she hanged herself from her own loom. Then Pallas felt sorry for the girl, so she turned her into a spider. It seemed like a kindness to a goddess, you know. It's not your real name, is it? No, no, I left that behind in Fiesha. 
She knotted a filament of gold around Anne's wrist and kissed Anne's palm. Anne's eyes clouded over. Your hair is so fine, Anna. What would happen if I cut it for you? Nothing. Why? It doesn't matter. It was just a thought. You look tired. Sleep. In the dark, she woke to find Arachne bending over her. Get up, darling, Arachne said. There was wine on her breath, and she wore a great deal of jewelry. Pipes and stringed instruments jangled below. Two of the archons are here. They want to meet you. Anne's head was too heavy for her shoulders. No. Come on, Anna, darling, just for me. She had a fresh peplus over her arm. This one was blue. It won't take long, I promise. And you must want supper. She poured wine before she dressed Anne and drank most of it, too. You're going to be so beautiful, she said, fastening a heavy collar set with carnelian around Anne's neck. She gathered Anne's hair up, nodding and twisting. You look so slim, darling, but you're so heavy. I turned my bones to stone. I didn't know what I was doing. Arachne's breath caught. I should paint your face, she muttered. But there isn't enough light. No, you look lovely as you are. She took Anne's hand, then peered with sudden concern at Anne's bare wrist. Where did it go? What? And just sit down, darling. Just give me a moment. She disappeared, reappearing a few minutes later with a length of gold thread wrapped around her fingers. For good luck, she said, tying it around Anne's wrist. Come. Anne followed her through a golden blur. She could hardly remember where she was anymore, let alone what she was doing or where to put her feet. The noise was unbearable. It was a party, and it was happening in a room painted to look like a lagoon, the walls awash with sand and seashells. There were considerably more than two men there. They lay on couches, talking and drinking and picking at dishes on low tables. Three pretty musicians played by the door. Sit here, darling, Arachne said, leading Anne to a couch. Anne sat down. What can I get you? Wine? Food? Anne stared at her. Arachne, she could see but the other faces merged and blurred, voices coalescing into a deafening hum. The painted waves on the walls seemed to tower higher. Arachne ran a finger along Anne's collarbone and licked her fingertip, and faintness roared in Anne's ears. Her face was hot. Everything felt unreal. She tried to find her way through the fog while the conversation swam around her, Sharp Dorican words flashed backwards and forwards, and Arachne, halfway down another cup of wine, gestured with both hands, and Anne thought it might all be a dream. She might really still be asleep in Arachne's bed. Out of the flood of sound, with perfect clarity, a man said, How did he imprison her? And Anne stood up. I want to go, she said. Something cut into her wrist. She snapped it, discarding it unthinkingly. Arachne stared up at her with round eyes and a round, startled mouth. Now, 
Arachne jumped up. Of course, darling, if that's what you want, she said, so fast she tripped over her words. She took a lamp from one of the tables. Why don't we go out to the garden? You remember, it's quiet, you like it there. The sounds of the dinner party could still be heard in the garden. It was cool, though, and dark, and Anne's head began to clear. She filled her throat with the freshness of grass and rose leaves. Salt flew like snow in the sea breeze. Arachne set down the lamp on a chair. There, darling. Better? Yes. I am glad. She took Anne's hands, kissing each of Anne's palms in turn. You are so lovely, Anna. Will you make another rose bloom for me? I think it would look very well in your hair. It opened with a burst of scent that flooded the garden. Beautiful, Arachne said. There was a tremor in her voice. I would never have thought it possible. But you can do impossible things, I know. She took a breath. They say those who die of the plague in Vitalia get up again, that it began in Florence, where the duke kept a witch chained up in a tower, that now the dead walk the fields and the cities, that they can fight or be herded like cattle. Is that true? Yes. Did you do it? Yes. Show me, Arachne said. Look, show me with this. It was a magpie. It had been killed recently, so recently that its feathers had not begun to loosen and it smelt of meat rather than corruption. Anne turned it over in her hands. There were still mites under the feathers. The wings splayed out white and black and the sad, shriveled feet curled against her fingers. The stench of Florenz at the end rose up in her memory like an angry ghost. It had been early summer and the greasy heat mingling with rot had shimmered in the air. Anne had walked through it blindly and breathed it in and used it to make the dead things get up as she passed by. Just like opening rosebuds. But rosebuds were as fresh as any other green thing, whereas death tasted of decaying meat. One or two would not have been so bad. In Florence, the dead had numbered in the tens of thousands. Swimming in power, Anne had raised them all and then struggled not to drown. They had rotted, on their feet and all through the city. Revulsion surged in Anne's throat. She cast the bird away compulsively, her skin crawling. It spread its wings and disappeared into the dark. Arachne sank to her knees. You are truly remarkable, Anna she said in a low tone. You make me think of the saying that only a god or a beast can live outside society. You can restore life to the dead. What do you need city walls for? Are you a god? It's not life. It's just movement. Is there a difference? You can do such things, and yet that terrible duke held you in chains. I don't understand. How could anyone imprison you? Pietro might have got up from his chair, but Anne had burnt his body instead. She wanted to think of him when she had first met him, 
as he had been through the long, comfortable years she had lived in his house, in his city, but it was the dying Pietro she remembered instead, the man she had gone to save from the mob, the Pietro who had clung to her and told her to burn him and let him go. Just movement. He didn't. What do you mean? He didn't imprison me. He loved me. Of course he couldn't have kept me there if I didn't want to stay. Arachne's eyes were very wide. Could anyone? No, I don't think so. Arachne got up slowly. Come to bed, she said. I'm sorry. I should never have woken you. The dead magpie scraped its beak against the open shutters. Anne observed it through a soporific haze. The feathers that should be white shone bright as brass, and even the magpie's black tail had a metallic tinge. A silk braid an inch wide glowed around each of Anne's wrists. Through the window, Anne saw only yellow sky. She was halfway through a yawn that was taking months when Arachne burst in. You're awake, Arachne said, or seemed to say, since her voice sounded distorted like someone speaking through water. A cup shook in her hands, three-quarters full of wine she had probably been drinking already. Anna, I have to tell you something, but maybe you should drink this first. It was the old vintage. Arachne watched her drink with reddened eyes. Why don't we go down to the garden, she said. Come on, get up. You like my garden. It might be better there. The golden air was as heavy as water. It thickened as Anne descended, her head swimming, until she found herself in a garden where she struggled to breathe and all the leaves were gold. The magpie peered down at them from the roof. Arachne seemed not to see it. Anna, she said, pressing Anne's hands. Sit, darling. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I wish this hadn't happened. I want you to know that. I want your forgiveness. For what? Arachne closed her honey-colored eyes. It looked as if she had been crying. Darling, she said, you never asked me again. Ask me now. It took Anne a moment, or possibly an hour, to realize what she meant. Your talent, she said. Her foot was numb. She shifted position. It must be something to do with cloth. True silk. What is that? Arachne kissed her fingertips and pressed them to Anne's cheek. It's useful to be loved, she said simply, for a stranger in a strange city. I am sorry. The discarded wristbands were pure silk, but the peplus was mostly wool. Anne turned up her hem to the light, looking for colors and patterns. Cloth was not something she had thought about much before. She regretted that suddenly. Now she knew what to look for, she could feel the heat flickering along the golden border. It's very good. How do you do it? Darling? True silk. She glanced up and found Arachne looking at her with a peculiar expression. The sweep of Arachne's hair shone in the sun. Oh, Anne said, it's your hair. You spin it from your hair. Don't you? 
Arachne opened her mouth, then sat looking bewildered. Aren't you cross? I never heard about this before. Will you teach me how to spin? There's something else, Arachne said. When my hair turned gold instead of white, the mothers knew. You spin your color into the silk, we say. But I, I found out how to replenish it. I killed my husband, Anna. I never wanted to get old. And outside Phaeacia, no one knows you can drink the life from your lovers. She spread her hands helplessly. Forgive me. Anne, who had already known it, drew in a burning breath. She thought of her occasional faintness, especially in Arachne's bed. Don't do it again, she said. I wouldn't like it. I know, darling. I'm sorry. Arachne's eyes welled up. I thought you could stay here. I thought you could do such things for us, for Heliki. We have enemies, and you have such power. But Anna, darling, you frighten me. You frighten the Archons. You can do such things, and how could anyone stop you? You broke every spell I laid on you. You can bring back the dead. We thought your duke had kept you in Florence, and if he could, then it must be possible. But it wasn't true. He didn't. We can't control you. What if you raised an army here? I don't want to. Why would I? Arachne rubbed her wet eyes. That's what I said, darling, but the Archons insisted. You have to understand, I only live here. I'm not a citizen. I don't have a citizen's rights. So? Arachne leaned forwards and pinched Anne's ankle. Did you feel that? She said. When the cold reaches your heart, it's the end. Anne thrust her arms into the earth up to her elbows. She was very much awake suddenly and seeing more clearly than she had for weeks. Hemlock, she thought. In a moment, she would be furious. Numbness tickled her knees and ran its cold fingers up her inside thigh. Below the earth, the volatile Dorican marlstone, shoving and shrugging, sang its cracked song. She reached down to it. I am so sorry, Arachne was saying. It was in the wine. I thought it might not be so bad to die in a garden. Forgive me. The rosebuds crumbled, then the glossy leaves. Remotely, Anne was aware of the grass collapsing into dust around her. Energy filled her from mouth to stomach, from her crackling hair to her bloodless toes. Sensation flooded back into her legs. She rolled her head on her shoulders, feeling the fault lines dance deep in the earth. She got up. Arachne rocked back, pressing both hands to her drowned mouth. Anne's head was humming. Tell me, she said. What happened to the second Arachne, the one you liked better? Did she win her contest? Arachne seemed unable to speak. Anne brought down her heel on a fault line, hard. The ground jumped. Tell me. She was cheated, Arachne whispered. She showed Pallas to herself. She wove all the evil things the gods ever did to mortals, 
and Pallas destroyed her cloth and cursed her to weave forever. Please, Anna, please, I never wanted this. Anne kicked another fault line. This time the whole house shook. You can die in a garden, she said, and walked out. Haliki groaned as Anne walked through the sinking streets. The paving stones bucked and the houses creaked and juddered, people running in confusion through a hail of roof tiles. With every fresh tremor, another section of the city sank. Anne was aware the instant the sea swept over the harbor walls. She went on in a cold fury. She could see exactly how she had been used now. She might have undone it, but there was no way to lay the fractured marl to rest, and anyway, her toes still tickled from the after-effects of Arachne's poison. The dead magpie flew ahead, wearing Arachne's golden bands around its feathered neck. At the piazza, the great jars had been flung down from the temple steps and lay in pieces on the ground. The wine bled into the waves already lapping at Anne's calves. Under the sycamore tree sat the sea cat. Anne, child, she said, I knew I should never be disappointed in you. She looked practically human. Anne was too angry to be afraid. You promised me safe passage, she said. But you never said you wanted the city. Well, you can have Khaliki. You can have the people. Your victory can swim free. But you can't have me. The water was rising fast. Tethys laughed, showing all her teeth. I would not keep you, she said. Go. And welcome back. One of the things I loved about this story was the exploration of control and relationships. Arachne assumes the only reason Anne might have stayed in Florence was because she'd been somehow ensnared by Pietro, never considering that someone as powerful as Anne may have stayed voluntarily because she loved him. I also love the undead plague as the ultimate symbol of the struggle for control. As Anne points out when explaining how her resurrection touch works, it's not life, it's just movement. Like the undead bodies, Arachne wants Anne controlled, obedient, having movement but no life. Everyone in the story is trying to use Anne, but nobody understands that she's never actually been used by anyone because of her strength. There's some parallels to the story of Samson, who is strong enough to walk away from impossible situations as a lover tries to entrap him over and over again. But while Anne is able to escape from her ensnaring lover, like Samson, she ultimately discovers she is the pawn of the supernatural. This reversal struck me as quite existential. Even a woman who cannot be subdued finds herself the tool of the gods all along. Perhaps for a woman haunted by guilt and grief over the city of zombies she left behind, this journey was movement for her, but not life. Feedback this week is for Podcastle episode 324, Without Faith, Without Law, Without Joy, by Saldin Ahmed, read by Steve Anderson. Response was strongly positive for this one. Electric Calden said, I really like this one. It reminded me of all things of Onyx Path's Changeling, The Lost. Those poor bastards, stolen away by some awful fairy, twisted and warped so that they can play some role in the Fairy Queen's endless pageant. 
I love the way Doyle's found a beautiful moment of triumph in recovering his name and his past. It was terrible and beautiful and sad. Personally, I was kind of predicting that Red Cross would turn out to be another captive, just as tragic and hollowed out as, as the three brothers. It's not what the author was going for in the end, and what he was going for was great, but I think it would have been cool. Chocolate Time said, I know some other people felt that Abdul Wadud's memories slowed the pacing of the story, but ultimately they were crucial. These were memories of very universally human moments between family, an antithesis to the characters Red Cross was trying to render the brothers down into. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Abdul Wadud had to remember both his brothers, his past, and his daughter, his future, in order to reclaim himself. You have to know where you've come from and where you're going, you know? Beautiful, beautiful work, Saladin. This one's going to stick with me a long time. Thank you for those comments. Come let us know what you thought of the story at forum.escapeartist.net. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Every single cent goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcast going so we can bring you the best in fantasy fiction week after week. And if you can't donate, tell a friend about us. Well, that was our show this week. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, LaShawn Wanick, Graham Dunlop, Carwin Jiwa, Sarah Goldman, Peter Wood, Anna Schwinn, and Dave Thompson, thank you for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with another story. Until then, this is Rachel Jones for Podcastle, reminding you that for a stranger in a strange city, it's useful to be loved. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Hafez said, Your love should never be offered to the mouth of a stranger, only to someone who has the valor and daring to cut pieces of their soul off with a knife, then weave them into a blanket to protect you.